This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello and welcome to uh, Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. And um, I am Rachel Valensky, the CIO of Canada and Global Chair of Equity Portfolio Management and am your moderator for today's session. Today's session is a kickoff of a market update. Well, where do we start? Calendar year 2022 will likely go down in history as unprecedented and unpredictable. It started with a lot of optimism. Then a lot of bad things happened and Russia invaded Ukraine, inflation took off, and markets sold off. To make sense of all of this and chart our future course, joining me today are two Mercer's heads of asset allocation, Rupert Watson, our European head, and Cameron Sisterman, our Asian head. So let's get started. So um, as the saying goes, never let a good crisis go to waste. So, Rupert, I believe you're fairly constructive for the way things are shaping up for 2023. Um, well, I would I, I would describe myself as not being pessimistic. Um, and I would point to, um, obviously, lots of people are worried about recession. Um, and I think it's important not to get too hung up on whether you have a couple of quarters of minor negative GDP growth or, or not. Um, because I think it is pretty certain that most parts of the developed world We'll see pretty weak growth um, for the whole of this year. Uh, and in, as we move into next year, while I'm a bit more optimistic in Europe, I think the US will be weak next year as well. But the reason for my perhaps relative optimism is the recovery that I think we're about to see in China, uh, where the economy is reopening after a prolonged COVID lockdown. Uh, and also we've seen better news uh, on natural gas prices in Europe. When natural gas prices are still elevated, um, but they're half the level they were um, back in December and a fraction of the level they were um, back in August. So I think some of the downside risk to growth, which last year or to end of last year, were a lot to do with European gas prices uh, and also what was going on in China. I think a lot of the downside risks have, have, have reduced. And as a result of that, I'm turning uh, more cautiously optimistic, uh, but not not actually optimistic. I think we're still going to have pretty cautiously optimistic. So. Q4 was all about fight the Fed's rally, like attempt equities and 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 other risk assets attempted attempting to rally, and then um, Fed chair coming in and kind of disabusing the market of their um, happy uh, expectations. So, do you think we're finally turning the corner here? Well, I think there are two things that are happening, and there's a sort of a tug of war in markets at the moment between the decline we're seeing in inflation which I think is going to be pretty significant uh, uh, with goods prices, eventually uh, rental prices um, and some other things all falling perhaps quite sharply. So better news on the inflation front, Fed going on hold round about the 5% level, 
which I think is all a pretty good tailwind for markets, set against fears of how weak the economy will be and for how long, and the implications of that for co- for, for corporate profits. I'm not into micro forecasting, but if I was, I would say near term for equities next three, six months. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sort of reasonably optimistic. If we move into next year, I think the weakness in the US will linger, um, but time will tell. Well, maybe I'll switch to you, uh, Cameron. Um, there was a lot of pessimism, especially post the um, uh, the Congress, the 20th Congress last year. Um, and uh, I remember I was a, a moderator of a panel at a GIF in Canada, Global Investment Forum in Canada. And I don't, th- I think it was the peak of the pessimism of China. And I believe it was in October, late October. So what has changed? Because it does feel a little bit better. And obviously, Rupert is pegging some of his cautious optimism on China. So what has happened in your opinion? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. I think, you know, a lot really has has changed in China, particularly since about uh, October last year into November and December. Um. And I mean, the first one I think was, you know, for a lot of last year and also in 2021, there were con- a lot of concerns about uh, the property sector. There are a significant number of property developers going into default um, and, you know, people are starting to not pay their mortgages, uh, developers not completing projects. And, and as a result of those issues, plus, you know, the, the COVID lockdowns and so on, that people were not confident to, to buy a property, which sort of accelerated those problems. Um, and there are a lot of expectations that at some point I think the state would step in and then, you know, for some time they never really did until, you know, in, in November, December, they, you know, did uh, in, unveil a number of, of uh, policies that did sort of put a floor under things and, and should uh, lead to some kind of recovery going forward. Um, we've also seen efforts from the government to sort of roll back uh, their three red, lo- red lines policy, which was essentially, you know, restricting uh, the developers from, you know, taking on on new levels of, of leverage depending on, you know, what their balance sheets look like and that, that's being rolled back. Um, and, of course, as Rupert mentioned before, the other big one was the ending of the zero uh, COVID uh, policies um, and that that clearly came as a surprise. I think there were signs that, you know, possibly starting, you know, around about this March or so in spring that uh, we'd, we'd start to get some kind of uh, policies happening and then, you know, from from November and then there was some softening in, in, in the rhetoric from the state about, you um, about uh, the the uh, you know how to treat COVID, and then subsequently you know allowing people to quarantine at home before basically dropping everything uh, before Christmas, and and you know which was several months uh, sooner than than everybody else had expected. Um, and so I think with that, you know, it, it did sort of reverse the the expectations or the the view um, amongst a lot of the Cameron. If you allow yeah. me, though, uh, sure. I'd like Rupert to win as well. But there was a lot more than just you know, some of the issues that you mentioned, there was clearly interpolation of Russia, Ukraine to China and Taiwan. And at some point, there was even a concern that China is kind of reverting to away from market capitalism. So I think that has kind of somewhat gone away. Would you agree, Rupert Cameron? Well, I I think I'm going to let Cameron respond. My My learning from last year is that no one has the faintest idea what the Chinese authorities will do and what drives them, and that we correctly 
because it matters, try to understand what the Chinese authorities um, are planning. And, you know, it matters massively for economies and markets. But I think the reality is that, you know, you shouldn't kid yourself, you really know what they're going to do. Um, and that going forward, the best assumption is that you've no idea. But anyway, Cameron, perhaps you want to respond. Yeah, but but is it fair to say that the worst kind of scenario of them going back to Mao days is pretty much off the table at this point? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say we don't know. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very long run thing. Right. You know, it's going to play out slowly over the next couple of decades. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Rupert that the Chinese authorities tend to be very uh, focused on on the long term. Um, but I, I don't think that going back to the Mao days, which seemed to be, to, to your point earlier on, Rachel, something that a lot of people outside of China um, seem to be expecting around October last year when, you know, after the People's Congress, you had Xi Jinping stack the, uh, the standing committee with all of his, his buddies and, you know, a lot of the technocrats had been uh, sort of replaced or uh, otherwise demoted. Um, but I mean, I think it, it, if anything, maybe that, you know, very weak sentiment, a lot of people saying that China had become uninvestable and so on was maybe more of a reflection of, of potentially unrealistic expectations that a lot of uh, international investors had about China before then. Because I guess, you know, we've been through this process now over several decades where they've been through a lot of economic and, and market reforms and gradually, um, you know, move towards a, a market-driven economy. And I guess some people thought that eventually at some point in time that the state would fully stand back away from things and, and you know, put in place a, a fully sort of laissez-faire type economy, um, which we didn't end up getting. Uh, and so maybe, you know, it, it's really these uh, economic reforms over the years have really just been about strengthening the state um, oh. and making them more wealthy to, you know, achieve China's objectives of being a, a superpower over the long term. Um, so, but I sense a, a bit of a consensus here. You both are quite constructive on China in the in in the uh, short run, at least. And um, Rupert, you're kind of it's one of your uh, if if it it's one of your assumptions that underpins your somewhat constructive um, scenario for 2023. And uh, Cameron. You are also uh, bullish on Japan, and and it was not easy to be bullish on Japan when one of their main markets has been pretty much shut down. So is is this part of your uh, bullish Japan thesis? Yeah, I think that the China links, it's, it's another reason to be more optimistic on the outlook for Japan and also for Japanese equities. Um, I think even before we had the China reopening, I was a little bit um, optimistic on on Japan, and I think there's there's a few reasons. Um, and just to be clear, I mean this is more of a short to medium term view. Obviously, Japan has a lot of structural challenges over the long term, which you know uh, a lot of hard work needs to be done to resolve. But in the sort of the short to medium term, I think Japan is benefiting from the fact that it's a little bit earlier in its cycle. Um, it is still going through that reopening process of its own, given you know it's taken time to adapt to, to post-COVID life, and then obviously you know borders weren't reopened until October last year. But there's also other indications that are quite positive. Um, so the the BOJ's um, Tankan survey, which is the sort of the main business sentiment index, points to very bullish um, capex um, expectations. And in fact, stronger than in the prior cycle when we had a, a capex boom that basically drove the last, you know, economic cycle. You've also got a, a tight labour market, um, which gives you know consumers uh, pretty good good spending power, of course. Um, plus the the China reopening. 
But one difference, I think, is, is around the inflation picture, whereas certainly in Japan, inflation is primarily driven by transitory factors. Um, and so that should, you know, enable the BOJ to retain a fairly accommodative policy. Um, but from an equity market standpoint, I guess, you know, you've got most of the, the or a significant proportion of the companies here are exporters. Um, and they're at, for those that, you know, produce at home here in Japan, that they have, you know, a low cost base, but they can sell now at much better prices in the international markets, not just because of a weak yen, but also, you know, just because of global inflationary pressures. And that should help to you know, improve their margins and close the, the gap uh, in margins between Japan, uh, Japanese companies and companies overseas, um, Cameron, which is important given... Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Cameron. How significant do you think the yep. tourism um, rebound from China is going to be for Japan? Because you know, Chinese tourists have been, or Chinese people have been stuck at home for a long time and Japan has had closed borders. I mean, the, the numbers could be huge, couldn't they? Definitely. And, and I mean, you know, they were one of the biggest sources, I think possibly the biggest source of tourists um, prior to COVID as well. Um, and often the average sort of, uh, would you say, um, dollars or, or amount of yen spent per tourist was, was much higher for those from China than from other countries. So the, the potential is, is massive. Um, um, other than your bullishness on Japan, um, any other asset classes that you feel constructive for 2023? We're talking short term here. For me, I mean, China equities is another one. Um, aside from the reopening that we talked about, you've got attractive valuations. The sentiment's still pretty weak. Um, and, you know, early cycle accommodative policy, it all adds up to a pretty pretty bullish picture. So just so you know, I looked it up. Uh, Chinese equities year to date are outperforming but by a significant amount. So it's kind of becoming a more of a consensus to you. But uh, Rupert, what is your... Uh, position near term what asset well actually you should have invited someone else on your podcast because i've got <laughs> to say to you as cameron um uh, yes they've already recovered a, a bit but they did underperform a lot previously right. um and i think there's quite a long way to go because you were talking about and cameron was talking about china as uninvestable um back in sort of you know september time into october um, and so there's a lot, you know, there's a long way back. There's a lot of investors who have been underweight China, uh, who have, you know, who, who are going to come back. And the, the Chinese, the Chinese tourism thing and the Chinese recovery more generally, uh, will, will support, you know, Thailand and Vietnam and a whole load of, uh, countries in the region, uh, that will benefit from the tourism bit, but also trade flows as well. What is your outlook for commodities for 2023? Uh, shall I? I'll, I'll, get, I'll, I'll sort of grab that one. I mean, I think the Chinese rebound story uh, is pretty significant in terms of demand for oil and a host of metals. On the other hand, you do we still have a sort of pretty soft global economy as a whole. U.S. GDP is going to be weak. Um, uh, Eurozone Europe as a whole is going to be weak. Global as a, economy as a whole is going to be weak. Um, and so I wonder whether commodities will have as much of an uptick as many are expecting. Also, while you know Chinese economy is set to to rebound, some of it won't be energy intensive. So the bits of the economy that are likely to be the strongest are all the things that people haven't done. So cinema, theatre, pubs, restaurants, services, services that people have stopped being doing, and none of that's terribly. Um, uh, commodity intensive. Um, so I, th I think I think you know commodities will be firm, 
but I'm not a not a major bull. So probably that's a good segue into the longer term outlook away from shorter, which is quite a bit more difficult. And maybe camera, I'll start with you. The theme of commodities, inflation is very topical still. There's a lot of sort of commodity intensive themes that might come up in the next uh, uh, five to 10 years, for instance, energy transition, um, reshoring, all of this. Like, What is your outlook on commodities going into the next decade? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that within commodities, there are obviously things that stand to benefit quite strongly from, you know, energy transition, decarbonization, all that sort of thing. But then a lot of the other things that maybe have a, a large weight in the commodity indices, if you're just going to be buying passive, maybe aren't the best place to benefit from that. So arguably, you know, you could say that a, a better way to, to play on that theme would be through uh, an equity allocation as opposed to, you know, directly purchasing um, the commodities uh, that are the or, or a commodity index. Um, Rupert, not sure if you have a view on that one. Uh, another another very smart observation there, Cameron. I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> so other than commodities, uh, Cameron, U.S. equities, large cap in particular, have been on a tear over the past decade. Do you see this reversing over the next, you know, three to five years? Yeah, I think there's a there's a pretty good uh, chance of of that happening, and I guess there's the yeah, we, we can talk about the drivers, but um, before I get to that, I mean, there is sort of a common observation in, in financial markets that often the things that do the best in a particular de- decade are, are some of the worst performing uh, sectors or asset classes in the next decade. I mean, it's talking about Japan before, you can think about Japan in the 80s as being, you know, great, but then in the 90s, it was terrible. Um, US tech in the 90s, then the tech wreck in the 2000s and so on. Um, and so maybe we could see with, you know, US large caps having done so well in the last decade that in this decade, they do uh, pretty poorly. Um, and I guess, you know, with that, that you know, strong performance that they had before, they've built up pretty pretty high valuations. And so they are, even with the derating that we saw last year, still quite relatively, you know, expensive compared to non-US equities, uh, emerging markets, even US small caps and so on. Um, and then also you could say a similar thing about the dollar, where the US dollar is also quite highly valued as well. Um, and maybe some of those factors that that really supported the dollar over the past several years are, are turning around. Um, and so you, you've got both the, the sort of the local currency underperformance as well as the, the dollar impact that, you know, would argue for uh, a relatively soft performance of, of US relative to non-US over the next uh, three to five years, as you say. And Karen, how much do you think of the US technology act performances down to sort of low interest rates? That, that perhaps, you know, who knows where rates are going, not going back to zero. Yeah, that's a great point. I think a lot of it, and and I mean, you know, some people have argued that maybe the the drawdown um, that we saw in, in equity markets last year was, was you know, basically just driven by, by the discount rates themselves. And so if that's the case, then, you know, if interest rates, if they don't return to low levels again, then maybe the, the outlook is particularly bad for those, uh, you know, growth stocks. Um, so, Prompert, you are quite bullish on technology. At a very high level, yes. I think. Yes. Yeah. So, how do you reconcile, I mean, the, the for instance, Cameron, uh, um, pessimistic outlook on U.S. equities going forward with your bullishness on technology? 
that's quite a tough question. The bit, of, the bit that I'm excited about about technology is I think we are at the dawn or at the early stage. I don't think we're at the middle. We're certainly not at the end of a massive technological revolution. Whether listed large caps are the way to play that, I'm not entirely sure. And so the example I sometimes give is that, you know, every company over the next decade is going to be a, a tech company. And that, say, for one coffee shop relative to another coffee shop, um, whether they succeed or not is whether they get technology right. Because although you can obviously already buy a coffee online, I imagine over 10 years' time it will all become fully automated. Um, and the company that has the best technology um, uh, will 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 do better than the one that has the worst technology, and no doubt for us as well here at Mercer. Um, but which companies are going to benefit from that, and whether it's the sort of the large caps, you know, that there's such big weights in the indices or not, um, I don't really, I don't really know. I think of it more as a, a sort of a macro driver than something that leads me something to more thematic. Yeah. Exactly. No. You also um, quite constructive on inflation uh, over the next three to five years. You're you're certainly not in the uh, elevated inflation for longer camp, and part of it is predicated on your views on technology. You also have an interesting view on energy transition. Perhaps you would like to expand on that. Well, the first one is I used to work at the Bank of England, and so I retain a residual loyalty to my former central bankers. Uh, but I think that basically, uh, over the long run, central bankers have the tools to achieve their inflation targets. And if their target is 2%, I think they will achieve roughly 2%. Now, because of some sort of big picture drivers over the last decade, US inflation averaged near 1.7, shall we say, over the preceding decade. And maybe over the next decade, um, inflation will average, you know, 2.2 rather than 2. But it will still be, I think, be pretty close to 2 because central bankers will, will, will do whatever it takes to ensure that. Now, there's a lot of, and on, on the climate transition, there's a lot of people who argue that the transition is massively inflationary. And I agree that it's probably inflationary now, today, and maybe next year, and who knows for how long. But at some point, it'll become a huge disinflationary force uh, because energy from from uh, clean sources will be so much cheaper uh, than fossil fuel. I mean, here I, I really hope you're right. As you know, we had many energy transitions in in the past, and it takes a lot longer than people hope. Well, for me personally, so I'm in in in, in Hampshire in the UK south south coast, um, and actually things were very cold phase at the moment. But for me personally, and on an unsubsidized basis, I can stick in solar panels and it saves me money. Um, and at a whole economy level, that is the case. Um, and, you know, in five years time, 10 years time, 20 years time, uh, it'll save people and countries an awful lot of money. Um, so and so Robert, I think ultimately very deflationary. So Rupert, Give me your set and forget portfolio. If you had to set a portfolio for the next three to five years, and what would it look like? It would be heavily long EM. Uh, Cameron was earlier talking about decades uh, favoring certain sectors, regions, what, what, whatever. I think the next decade is the decade uh, of EM based on a multi year weakening of the dollar. Uh, 
cheap, much cheaper valuations and a more robust uh, 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 economic growth. And Cameron, set and forget portfolio. Yeah, I, I think, again, I'm going to agree with Rupert and I include a, a big weight to, to emerging markets. But I mean, you know, three to five year horizon, um, given where we are now, I think you'd also uh, include a, a solid allocation to sort of short to intermediate duration credit as well. Um, I think given the starting yields are looking okay, not not quite as good as they were a couple of months ago, um, you know, plus uh, I guess the credit fundamentals are probably looking pretty good. So even if we, even though it's not our view, if we do get a recession, I think defaults will be pretty low. So EM plus, uh, you know, credit um, sounds good to me. Rachel, you're quiz master, um, but uh, 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 what, what would yours look like? Um, actually, I am at a different camp, uh, Rupert. I am actually in a camp on inf- inflation for longer, and my views are predicated on the fact that, that the margin things that contributed to disinflationary forces, uh, the margins are reversing. So as such, my uh, my send and forget portfolio will be heavily tilted to value equities uh, because under my scenario, value should enjoy a decade of prosperity uh, going forward. Um, so anything that falls into the value category will be heavily represented in my portfolio, such as emerging markets, commodity-producing emerging markets, not so sure China long-term, European industrials, for instance. Uh, So anything value-ish will be heavily represented in my portfolio. That sort of slightly follows in that, you know, Cameron's, you know, point about, you know, decade on, decade off, um, that obviously it was a ghastly decade for, 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 for value. Um, and maybe, you know, the next deck could be completely different. Yeah. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about any geopolitical events that you are concerned about that might derail your uh, outlook. Uh, well, I, 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 but I, my starting point is that most geopolitical events are wholly unforecastable. Um, and so uh, in, in a way, obviously, I don't know. Now, obviously, the Ukraine-Russian uh, situation could get worse. I mean, it's obviously a massive humanitarian disaster. It's geopolitically massively significant. It's not quite so obvious at the moment. It's hugely significant from an economy or market perspective. Um, but that might change. There are the usual. We, we've been worrying about North Korea every year for, 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 for at least 20. We've been worrying about the Middle East for every year, for, but for longer than that. And there are always geopolitical risks, um, whether they whether they come to fruition and how significant a market impact there is uh, remains pretty unclear. Um, Cameron, any last words on that? Yeah, I think I broadly agree with Rupert. I'll tell you one risk I'm not really worried about from a geopolitical standpoint, and that's a conflict over Taiwan. I think it's really come into focus over the past year with you know Russia and, and Ukraine. But I actually say that you know, the, the, the response of, of the US and a lot of other allies of, you know, and weaponizing the US dollar and all that sort of thing has basically made uh, the possibility of that much less likely in my view. Um, I think the... Um, my final question to both of you, do you see any risks that you would underestimate the upside for 2023? 
Well, I mean, I think from the upside, um, you know, we just talked about geopolitics. I think if you'd get a smooth and, and swift resolution to that Russia-Ukraine conflict, that could be one. Um, another one, I think, would be a confirmation of a US soft landing with inflation falling back swiftly towards the Fed's target, plus the, the you know, avoiding a, a recession. I think that would be very um, bullish for, for risk assets. I agree with that. And I mean, for those who don't know, Cameron's based in Japan. But, you know, in Japan, if Japan is able to pull off a sort of monetary policy normalization, and so, you know, over the intermediate term, inflation being sort of 2%, the J, you know, the Bank of Japan very slowly taking rates to one percent and very slowly unwinding its massive QE. Um, you know, that's all. You know, J- the Japan situation is often seen as a an accident waiting to happen, and if it doesn't happen, that would also be positive. Well, thank you very much both for joining me today. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe for more. If you would like to discuss anything from the podcast further, you can reach out to your local Mercer representative or email us at ctci at mercer.com.